Our scripture is in Matthew chapter 7, and we'll begin there in verse 21 tonight in our study of God's Word. Matthew chapter 7, in verse 21. False versus saving faith. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me, In that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have we not cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock, And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell And great was the fall of it. And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The closing words of our Lord in his Sermon on the Mount are some of the most sobering, and disturbing words in all the scripture. Can you think of any more serious than these in verse 23? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work or that do iniquity. Several times you'll see that verb there uh, in the scripture. You'll see the word do. Many uh, in verse uh, Verse 22, and in that name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And verse uh, 1, that doeth the will, 21, doeth the will of the Father which is in, in heaven. The warning here is the danger of a false profession. There's nothing more important than your soul's relation to Jesus Christ. There's no topic more serious and no more important thing to consider than where you stand before a holy God. Notice the words in contrast here to verse in verse 21, not everyone that saith. The contrast our Lord is giving here is those who merely use words and their actual doing of those things. Not everyone that saith contrasted with but he that doeth. And in verse 23, I will profess or acknowledge unto them, I never knew you. Something so serious, something so imperative, demands our careful attention. And so we'd ask, what is the Lord saying here? What is he meaning here? What is those who profess and those who do? What are the, the, the wise and the foolish people? What are the foundations that he gives that they're building upon? Keep in mind who the preacher is is here. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These are his words. This is his sermon. And he concludes all of his teaching with this serious warning, this most 
important of warnings. Remember also the context of these verses. Our Lord is just warned against false prophets. And here he warns against false professions of faith. And I want us to gather our thoughts around three headings, three ideas. First of all, the warning of our Lord in verses 21 and 23. And then the illustration that he gives of saving faith in verses 24 through 27. And then the response of the congregation in verses 28 and 29. Here our Lord at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. And what a conclusion this is to all that he's talked and, and taught. Beginning with beginning, blessed are the merciful, the beatitudes, the blessednesses, the merciful, those who are... Uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness and down through all the teachings that he's given and that we've studied and we come to these sobering, blood-chilling words. There's an urgency in his preaching as there should always be in true gospel ministry. This is the way the apostles who follow our Lord will preach. Now is the time. Today is the day. Whenever we give the gospel or preach the gospel, we must never let people think they have the luxury of waiting and seeing and of considering. And maybe one day we ought to always press them of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one knows of what will take place. No man knows what a day will bring forth. And the the urgency of the gospel is always now. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ now. Repent and believe the gospel now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Notice the words, now the apostles said. Our Lord has just stated that false prophets can be known very clearly. It's not a difficult thing to tell a false prophet. Those who know the truth know what is false. And a false prophet will be known by their fruits or the converts they make. If a person is preaching false gospel, he will have false converts. And that's the fruit of a false prophet, those that follow them. And those that teach false doctrine will mislead at the most important of things, the soul's salvation. And that's what is at stake here. It's not just a difference of opinion. Our Lord has just told us there's only one gate and it's narrow. There's only one door. There's only one way. A false prophet, then it would be someone who comes alongside and said, no, there are many ways. Christ is a way. But he's not so narrow as to think that he's the only door. And then they'll give other ways. Self-righteousness works. Leaning upon one's own understanding as a way of salvation. And those that teach false doctrine will mislead their hearers to the door of salvation. The proof is always in the pudding. And the, the way a person walks, not solely how they talk, is the real test of conversion. If the blind follow the blind, our Lord says they will both wind up in the ditch. And so just putting on sheep's clothing, as he warns about uh, in the the verses that we've already considered, does not make one a sheep. And we'd say, well, how obvious that is, Pastor. If I put on an outfit, that doesn't make me uh, a sheep. If I put on sheep's clothing, and we mentioned that that the shepherd would wear uh, clothes that were woven from the wool of the the sheep that he led. Well, a false prophet just putting on the garb of the shepherd does not make him a true shepherd. And so we want to notice, first of all here, the warning of our Lord and how clear it is. And what is it? It is this. Not everyone who professes or says with their mouths that they are believers really are. That's a serious matter. We know that to be true. 
We all know people that talk about the things of the Lord from time to time whose profession, their words, may be the right words. We may have even met people of cults or false teaching who use many of the same terms that we use but mean absolutely something totally different than what that the Scriptures mean by using them. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. The Lord makes it very clear of the fruit of those who have been truly converted. One might ask then, if he says, he that doeth, or, and really that word is, uh, is, is practicing, who perpetually does. It's not uh, just a temporary thing. Well, who is it? that? What is the will of the Father? If he says, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father, what is the will of the Father? John chapter 6 and verse 39 and verse 40, Jesus clearly tells us, and this is the Father's will which sent me. So if he says here, he that doeth the will of the Father, we should know what is the Father's will. And he tells us very clearly, this is the will of the Father which sent me, that all of which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And again, he repeats in verse 40 of John 6, This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, acknowledges this is the Messiah, yes, Jesus is the way, he is the, the heaven-sent way of salvation, everyone who seeth the Son and believeth on him, may have eternal, everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Who will be raised up? Those who see and acknowledge, not just with their heads and their words, that Jesus Christ is the Savior, but believe on him. The sinner is commanded to believe on Christ for salvation. That's not a, something to consider. It is an imperative. Uh, he is the door. He, he declares himself, I am the door, not a door. I am the door. And if any man will enter in, he shall be saved. It's very clear. It's very plain. He is that straight gate. And it is a narrow gate. There's only one way to eternal life. There's only one way to heaven. And it's Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It is a narrow opening, to be sure. And it's very unpopular in this day of relativism and, and inclusivism to, to say and not to make it so narrow and make it so imperative. But our Lord does. He himself makes it narrow. There's no choosing. There's not a multiple choice here. There's not several doors to choose. You remember the old game shows. What's behind door number one, door number two, door number three? And if you pick one, it's just as well as the other one. There are not many religions. There are many religions, but there are not many paths or way to heaven. I am the door. It's very clear. And what a warning this is. It ought to be soul-stirring and soul-sobering and bone-chilling to think, oh, could someone have missed it? Could someone profess to be saved and not be saved? The danger of having just a profession, lip profession, saying, oh, I'm a Christian. I believe that Jesus is the Savior. I believe these, His Word to be true. I'm a believer. I'm saved. But there's nothing to back it up. A few religious words or, or works or deeds that someone might point to, which all amount to filthy rags. The Holy Spirit tells us that of such things. A mere verbal agreement or a mental assent is not saving. Notice the earnestness of those 
who say, Lord, Lord, the repetitiveness of it is very important there. They didn't just say Lord, but Lord, Lord. These, and the picture here, I believe, is of the great day, the judgment day. This is the day he's speaking of. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. No one will be exempt. In the great revelation, the Bible says, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, no one is exempt from that day and that reviewing. And this is what the Lord has in mind here. Many will say unto me, Lord, Lord, the most sobering thing to consider is that in the the great day, there will be many, by our Lord's words here, who will sincerely think that they have gotten it right and who will be lost. And that's the, the thing he's getting a point, getting across to his hearers. Notice that that earnestness, Lord, Lord, they repetitively called him Lord. He asked a question elsewhere, why call ye me Lord? But do not the things I command you. The only way to test a profession is the fruit that results from it. The only way to test a false prophet is his fruit, his converts, those who follow him, what he teaches. And the only way to test a profession is the fruit that that profession has produced. And so we, in that, we must examine that. Doesn't the scripture tell us to do that? Examine yourselves to see if you be in the faith. Genuine faith can always stand inspection. That's something that's real, you don't have to worry about it passing the test. It is intrinsically what it says it is, and it will pass any test that you can give it. If something is truly gold, if you put it through the fire, it will only become purer. If you put silver through the fire, it will only be, become purer and a purer form. So faith can be, saving faith can be tested. We, we ought not to fear to compare it and use the test that our Lord gives us. These are not man-made tests. It's not someone's opinion. This is not a denominational uh, thing of whether someone is saved or not. What does the Lord say about it? And the only way to test that profession is the fruit that it produces. In the next chapter, when Jesus comes across the gathering demoniac, and they recognize him, those demons recognize that it was Jesus Christ, they ask a, a, a very interesting question. What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? The demons are not atheists. They recognize that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And the proof of that is this. They recognize that he truly was God. And as he begins, and they see that he's about to, to deliver this demoniac from the demons, they realize that he's the son of God with power and authority to do that. And they ask him another telling and interesting question. Are you come to torment us before the time? You see, the the. The the demons know prophecy, don't they? They know that there's coming a day when they will be cast into the lake of fire. And this is the the one who will do it at the great right throne judgment. Have you come, Jesus, thou son of God, have you come to deal with us, to put us into the, the lake of fire, which is obviously a real place because they know about it. Have you come before the time? What time? That time that God has set on his calendar, a time of judgment. It cannot be gotten around. That day is coming. And they ask him, have you come to deal with us before the time? 
the demons also pray. Prayer in and of itself is not proof that a person is regenerate. In verse 31 of the next chapter, you know what those demons ask? They pray. So the devils besought him, that beseeching, praying, saying, if thou cast us out, is that not a request? If you're going to cast us out, you have the power to do it. If you're going to cast us out of this man, allow us, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And interestingly, the Lord answers that request. And so we would say here that profession alone, saying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God alone is not saving. Uh, and true godliness and sincere obedience is the fruit of those that, that are real, uh, proves real conversion. None of us could say that those demons that possessed that man were, were angels or that they were saved. Of course not. He is Lord, but Lord denotes not just a title, when you say that word, you're denoting ownership and authority. And it, it, the very fact of saying that word demands obedience. We can consider the conversion. If we all would to look at conversions, the best ones to look at are the ones in the Scripture. There are many there for us to examine. And we think about that Pharisee, that self-righteous uh, follower of the Lord, he thought, Saul. And when he came, he had license from the high priest to bound and arrest and to torment and to extinguish, to put out of business those followers of the way. And remember how Jesus Christ met him on the road to Damascus in a very real and dramatic way. And Saul was not looking for the way of salvation. He thought he had arrived. He, if you'd asked Saul, he would have told you, I am a son of Abraham. I'm a, 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 of the line of Abraham. And as they often answered the Lord in that way, we're Abraham's seed. Saul would have pointed to his pedigree and to all of his, his education and his learning and how much scripture he knew and what he could quote. He would have pointed to works, self-righteous works to prove and his lineage to prove that he was indeed a child of God. But he saw it differently. And when he realized that it was the Messiah that he was persecuting what was his response? He used the same word, didn't he? Lord. But he put F not only just words behind it, what will thou have me to do? And he didn't just hear what he was supposed to do. He obeyed it. Go to a street called Straight. Join with a man named Ananias. He will tell you what to do. Saul submitted himself to baptism, didn't he? Was willing to do so. There was no argument about that. It was unthinkable for a Pharisee of Paul's standing to follow into that, that humbling uh, rite of, of baptism. But he submitted himself. This man, who was a, a leader in Israel, submitted himself to humble disciples, unlearned men. He sat at their feet to learn the doctrine of, of, of the Lord. And, and we, so his calling the Lord, Lord, was not just a, in lip service only, he meant that. You are my owner. You are my sovereign. I will follow you. We think of the Philippian jailer. His attitude changed very graphically when he became under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, did he not? What must I do to be saved? I believe if they told him, whatever they would have told him, he would have done it. And he submitted himself to the authority of the gospel, a willingness to, to believe not only on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they told him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And later, he himself followed the Lord that night in baptism. 
Well, the genuine believer here is described by his conduct, his actions. Verse 21, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The question arises, what do we mean by doing the will of God? We use that phrase all the time, don't we, among Christian people? The will of God, and uh, we, we use that. That's just one of those things that we talk about, and well, we should. But what do we mean by it? This is not describing, I don't want anyone to think, perfect behavior. It are religious works to be saved. I've mentioned the believer's baptism, but these people willingly submitted after they were regenerated, after they were saved to that ordinance as a sign that they were followers of the Lord, of obedience and humility, and that, that he genuinely was their Lord and Savior. But that doesn't save. We're not pointing to works here. Remember, however, that in, back in chapter 5, verse 48, our Lord in this same sermon it says an astounding thing. And he said it in the ear, in the hearing of the scribes and the Pharisees who were in the people's mind the very epitome of a rival. If, if, in other words, we'll just put it down where we live. They thought if the scribes and Pharisees weren't getting into heaven, nobody had a chance to go to heaven. And yet what does our Lord say? He says to that stunned audience, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will in no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. I can just see these people standing there with gaping mouths. How could it be? How could anyone exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, he obviously is pointing to something far more than just outward observance, an inward change of the heart. Remember, however, and he says also, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This is an unmistakably the divine standard since God himself is perfect. We often hear someone's people say, well, nobody's perfect, but that's the standard of God. And that's the standard of all who will enter heaven. They must be perfect. Well, if that is the standard, then there's a miracle that has to take place. Wouldn't you agree? If God demands perfection to get into heaven, and all of us, none of us are, all of sin and come short, fallen short of the glory of God, that's all of us, even the best of us, then there's a problem here. It absolutely must not be what we could do to obtain it. It must be a righteousness that is given to us. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ is meaning. An imputed righteousness that comes solely by the work of Christ in the heart of a believing sinner. One truly has been saved, truly desires the Lord to rule over them. I realize there is growth and there is uh, sanctification as we've been talking about, speaking about on Sunday nights of sanctification, and yet there will be a real life in that believer and a desire to know and to grow and to do the Lord's will. In Luke 19, verse 14, in the parable of the pounds, the nobleman calls to him his ten servants, and he gives them his money, and then he leaves. And he gives them strict instructions about what to do with his money. It was, after all, his, and if it's his, he can be strict about what is done with it. And then after he leaves, the citizens hated him. His servants hated him. And they sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. How proud, how, how, how unbelievable they were the man's servants. And they said, we will not have him to reign over us. 
It reminds us of that mob who cried and demanded for Jesus' crucifixion. We have no king but Caesar. When Pilate said, behold your king. He's not our king. They had the same cry as this, this crowd in the parable. We will not have this man to reign over us. The total opposite of what a repentant, regenerated heart would say. It is not a sinless obedience that we're talking about here, but a sincere one. It is not a forced one, but one that is drawn out by love, drawn out by uh, what the Lord has done for us. That's why we are commanded to examine ourselves, to see if we be in the faith. God's word is plain. The apostle John will later write, uh, the apostle Paul writes in, in, in Corinthians, when he's dealing with the, the Corinthians and that miraculous church, of course, every church is miraculous. Think about it. Sinners saved by grace. But there were notable sinners in the congregation of the church at Corinth. And you'll remember they had allowed a man of standing in the church to continue to live in a, a despicable sin of incest. And they'd done nothing about it. They had looked the other way or prided themselves in their openness and their non-judgmental attitude. And the apostle absolutely condemns them because of it. And he gives them an illustration. He tells them to examine their own conversion, their own salvation. And he gives them this question, this uh, situation. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Only those who have been made righteous will enter that kingdom. Be not deceived. If he tells us don't be deceived, there's a very high possibility that we can be deceived. And he says, don't be deceived, neither fornicators, those of sexual, committing sexual lifestyles, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, speaking of homosexual practices, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. He very clearly says these who that's their lifestyle. They practice this lifestyle, and he gives that list, and it's just a sampling. It's not just that those things in that list, but it's enough to make them consider their standing. Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And such, this is the point Paul gives, such were, past tense, some of you, they had been saved, many of the, those in the membership of the church at Corinth had been saved out of such desperate places and desperate practices, but they were no longer practicing that. In fact, that was the proof they had genuinely been saved. Such were some of you, but ye are, and he describes, you're washed, you're sanctified, you are set apart and are being set apart. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Saving faith is shown by a changed life. We could give Scripture after Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul, in that glorious passage of Scripture that talks about the need to be reconciled to God, we're enemies to God, and we're born enemies to God, and must be reconciled to Him. And he says in, in that vein of Scriptures, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. That's nothing short of a miracle of regeneration. A new birth that our Lord tells Nicodemus 
that every person must experience to be saved and to enter into heaven. A mere intellectual assent comes short of saving faith. As we've mentioned, the demons have intellectual assent. They believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's not just knowledge or facts, although it includes that. A person does need to know these things, but mere intellectual assent is not saving faith. If it is not from the heart, as Romans 10 verse 10 commands, that we believe from the heart that God has raised him from the dead. Our Lord describes saving faith as real and measurable to the extent of Luke chapter 9 verse 23. He said unto them all, if any man will come after me or wills to come after me. There were many who started out following Jesus Christ in his ministry. And we see from time to time the Bible says they turned back and followed him no more. And so he makes it very clear and very plain what he expects. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. To deny oneself is to agree with God about ourselves. And the picture is of getting on the witness stand in the courts of heaven and joining sides with the judge and saying, yes, everything that the prosecuting attorney has said is true. That's denying self. But it doesn't just end there. It's a daily denying of, him, of ourselves, the Lord tells us, of taking up our cross. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. What does it mean? Who tries to save himself by his own ways or by his own reasonings. Cain did that, didn't he? We have all kinds of illustrations in the scriptures who said who, those who knew the truth and felt that their way or their interpretation of it was just as well as someone else's. How many of you witnessing to people I can't tell you the times I've given the gospel to people and someone will say, Preacher, I'll just tell you, this is the way I think. I believe it like this. I believe that one of these days when we stand before the Lord, He's going to pile up over here all the bad things we've done. And He's going to pile up all the good things we've done over here. And I'm a good person. And I believe the Lord will, will give, give me entrance into heaven. It's the most ludicrous, idiotic reasoning because if you looked into your own heart, there's not a one among us who would dare to think that our pile of good deeds would outweigh the sin that we committed against the Lord. We have a warped view of sin, or we explain a lot away if you think that pile is heavier than the other pile. That's works. That's filthy rags. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. Isaiah speaks of our righteousness, all that we can pile up. Go ahead and pile it up. Do you know what it's going to be? Stenchy, filthy rags. All the religious deeds and sincerity on earth stinks in the nostrils of God apart from the fragrance of the righteousness of Christ, which can only be obtained by faith. Well, the Bible tells us, and he said unto them all, if any man will come after me. Then he goes on to say, what advantage if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. The individual must find and first be reconciled to God before he'll receive anything. At his hands, Genesis 4 verse 4 says, The Lord had respect to Abel 
and to his offering. You see, it wasn't Abel's offering that saved him. The Lord had respect unto Abel. Why? Because Abel, the scripture tells us, came in faith. His offering, that he, the acceptable offering, one prescribed, he was accepted because he came in faith. He had, he had respect unto Abel and his offering. But he didn't have respect unto Cain's offering, did he? It was will worship. It was Cain's own idea, his own way. So the warning then is of a false sense of security based on works without repentance faith. Those who practice sin and lawlessness prove that they do not possess saving faith. But then our Lord illustrates what he's talking about. He gives those sobering words. Not everyone who says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. That in itself ought to cause examination. But then he goes farther. Therefore, in verse 24, and whenever there's a therefore, it always harkens back to what he's taught. So you always look backward. When you come to a therefore in the scripture, you always look backward in light of what has been taught, the vein of the teaching that precedes it. And it harkens back to what he's been teaching. In other words, what constitutes genuine saving faith? Entering into, by the door, the straight gate, Jesus Christ. All this he's just said. Therefore, in light of that, I think both true and false believers are described and contrasted here. So our Lord makes it very clear. He's so gracious, isn't he? He does just give, give one of these devastating statements and then walk off. He could have done that, couldn't he? Not everyone that said to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Depart, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. He could have just said amen and give the benediction and walked off. Aren't we glad he did not? He illustrates what he said. And these builders here, we've read the scripture, there are two builders here. They both have heard the gospel. What does he say there? Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. What are we talking about in the context? The way to heaven, the way to salvation, the straight gate. Both these builders heard that. They knew that Christ claimed to be the door, the straight gate, and that not everyone who just said they were believers were. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, all that he's just taught, and doeth them. Is that not what he says? Proving that they've genuinely been saved. The wise and foolish builders both hear. And then they both start to build after they've heard the way of salvation. The wise man builds a house. And this house represents his life. He begins to build his life. His, his life begins to, to take shape based on what he's heard. And he begins to build his life, his, his, represents his life on these sayings of mine. This man is basing his entire life, his every decision, his soul's rest on these sayings of mine. This indicates that the foolish man obviously thinks that he's okay. He agrees, he nods, he says, I believe he heard the same instruction that the wise men heard, right? These two men both are equal hearers to the sayings of the Lord. And just because he's heard Christ's words, agrees with them, and no doubt agrees to some extent, he thinks that, he, that the life he lives is pleasing to God, one thing we see here is that sincerity is not in question here. No one builds a house that he hopes will, will fall in at, at any time. That's ridiculous thinking. So this man is sincere, which is another sobering thing to consider. People, don't you think that people are in the, the false religions and the cults and, and so forth are sincere about it? 
those people down in, in South America who drank the Kool-Aid years ago and a thousand of them died, was that not real sincerity? Are there those who practice unbelievable uh, lifestyles and in, 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 uh, going along with the teachings? The sincerity is not in question, but sincerity does not save. Sincerity is not the question here. He doesn't intentionally build his house over a sinkhole. Who would do such a thing? I mean, think about the most expensive thing you own is your house. You don't say, let me, let me see, can we find a place uh, that, that's in an area that's going to, to, to has sinkholes or that is purposefully not built the right way? You have inspectors to come when you buy a house. You want them to tell you every possible thing that's wrong with it. You want them to, to look and to measure and to go on top and go underneath and to tell you what you don't want to hear with this thing that you've fallen in love with. You want the, the, the warts and all, the truth. Why? Because you're going to outlay a pile of money. You don't find the worst builder in town if you're going to build a house. You go and look at things that he's built. You talk to other people who've used the builder, and you're very careful about this. This, this is not a question of sincerity. You don't build a house and, and, and go with case Sarah. Well, whatever it will be, we don't really care. We'll just build another one when that one falls in. No. Think, this man is building it himself. Think of the effort and the toil. One man hears and obeys, showing that his hope is in the Lord. The other man's confidence is in who? Is in himself. These men build their houses in the same area. I, I think that's akin to they, they attended the same church, if you will, heard the same teaching, the same preaching, heard identical fellowship with the same friends. I believe they built the same kind of house. If you were to go to the Holy Land in that day, if you go there today, you'll see very similar structures. Pretty much all of them look the same. And they use the same materials. They carefully chose the rock and the, the, the mortar and all that they were using to build these houses. I believe they basically built the same kind of house. From the outside, you would not have told anything inferior about the, the foolish man's house from the wise man's house. The differences weren't noticeable from the outside, but one built his house, his life, upon the words of Christ. He acted obediently upon them. When Peter confessed, the Lord asked him, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. But I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, my father, he says, my father's revealed this to you, but upon this rock I will build my church. This rock is the same word that's used here in Matthew chapter 7. And it's the bedrock of God's word, his divine revelation. Any salvation that's built on anything else but the word of God is sinking sand. It's not man's opinion. It's not a denominational vote. It's not on sincerity or any other number of things you might point to. Our salvation rests upon the person and work and the words of Jesus Christ. And so his divine revelation to us, the mark of true discipleship or of truly knowing the Lord, is not just hearing, not just believing, not just nodding, or agreeing. In 1 John 2, he says, And hereby we do know that we know him. Here's a test. If we keep his commandments. The clearest, most obvious test 
of true conversion is those who are obeying the Lord. How would you examine your own profession of faith? Is it by the feelings you felt? Is it the emotion? Is it the, the, the style of the preacher? What, what would you, when you examine your profession of faith, how you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of it all, we could look at Paul's conversion, the different conversions. It's not the circumstances around those things. At the end of it all, this is what Christ has said, and this is what has taken place in my heart. The only way you can measure your conversion is by your obedience to the Word of God. Hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He that saith, again, professes, profession of faith, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, that ongoing, living for, obeying, continuing, it's not perfection, it's not someone who stumbles, and that doesn't stumble, we're not saying that, but that word keeping is a continual direction of life toward the Lord. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments. The Apostle John is pretty bold. He says a word that my mother would have washed my mouth out with soap if I'd say it. He is a liar. You know, the only one that's used of that in the scripture is Satan himself, isn't it? Your father, your father, the liar. He that saith I know him, but does not do what God Christ says, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, we sometimes look at the word keeping as just guarding, but it's It's a practicing of what we say we believe. He that keepeth his word, keepeth his word in him verily, is the love of God perfected, and hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought, this is an imperative, himself also so to walk. How? Even as he walked. The wise man is then is one who comes to Christ and hears his instructions and acts upon them. He turns from self and sin and to the Savior. I want you to know that building upon the bedrock is not the easiest place to build a house, but it is the best place. Building on the sand, there's no drilling, there's no problem with that. Find you a smooth place and build. But I want to warn you, that the rains and the winds and the storms are going to come. And these are not the different circumstances of life. These, I believe, are pointing to the great day, with that great unveiling, that great revealing, when everything will be manifested as it really is, not the way we think it is or want it to be. As we stand before him who is truth himself, And the truth of it all is laid out there before us. In that hour, when the wrath of God is upon them who did not believe the gospel. You see, for those who are in Christ, the wrath of God has been showered upon him at Calvary. And that's the only wrath a believer will ever know. But that day is coming, that great day is coming, that horrible earth-shaking, bone-chilling day when every person who's ever lived will stand before him. He that says unto me, in verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say, 
Many will go through the motions. Many have been religious and point to their religious deeds and the things that they've done, even casting out of devils, is a very amazing thing to say. And I can't fully explain that, although the Lord says here that many will point to their ability to have cast out devils uh, in my name and done many wonderful or seemingly miraculous works. And so miracles alone is no proof that a person is a genuine believer, our Lord says. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. This is the great white throne judgment. It came to pass in verse 28 when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished. It turned everything they believed upside down. And his doctrine, it is teaching. It was so different from what they'd been taught. They'd been taught if you do this and this and this and this, and because you are a Jew, because you are of the lineage of Abraham, you will spend eternity in heaven. And Jesus says exactly the opposite. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word, the study of his word tonight, and give faith to those who need the Savior.